Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I've had over the years all of my colleagues and and students who've had babies, and I just say, you know, nine-month revolution, wait for the nine-month revolution. And between nine and 12 months of age, it's like clockwork. They they start pointing um, and holding things up and showing them, which chimps don't do either. Just like, just like picking up a toy and holding it up in the air and showing it, um, just to share attention to it. That's Michael Tomasello talking about something we don't think much about, but that may be at the very heart of relating and communicating, shared attention. I last met Michael when I interviewed him a few years ago in Leipzig, Germany. He was already doing experiments that studied the differences between how human children and chimps learn to communicate. Using technology that chimps may not get to for a while, Michael and I talked through video conferencing between our studio in New York and his lab at Duke University. Michael, I'm so glad to be able to talk to you today because we talk all the time about communicating and relating, conversing with one another, and you've spent a great deal of intellectual resources figuring out where it all began, where we got that. to the extent that that makes us different from other animals, I think you've you've really pointed us toward a new way of looking at it. And talking about pointing, I just said the word pointing. <laughs> I guess that was a, an unconscious uh, uh, introduction into your thing it, because it seems to begin with pointing, doesn't it? Uh, certainly the unique aspects of human communication um, begin with pointing. Pointing is kind of the ur act of reference, And it's especially interesting because if I point for you right now in a certain direction, I'm essentially saying, look in that direction and you'll know what I mean. The point by itself doesn't have any communicative content. It just tells you to look somewhere and then get the inferential machinery going and read my mind. Yeah, it's so interesting. We take pointing for granted. We we know instinctively or in some way, some inner voice is saying to us, that point has meaning. You're not just raising your hand with one finger out. That's correct. And and we know that you want, I know you want me to see something significant or that you regard as significant. So is that actually the basis of language itself, do you think? It is. I mean, people have, philosophers have wondered about, you know, the origin of meaning, um, for many centuries, but um, linguistic meaning is a special um, type. And linguistic meaning uh, comes from the conventions that we have, that we have a 
convention that we'll call this object here a chair, but in another language, they have a different convention. And that's a very sophisticated form of communication that builds on this more basic type. And the more basic type is essentially uh, manifests most clearly in pointing, um, um, where, again, I show something to you, and I am in essence saying you're going to find this interesting or relevant, and uh, and then you tr- you search to try to see uh, how that might be. And I get like- the impression. Pardon me for interrupting. Yes, mm-hmm. I just want to break in right on that thought. I get the impression that pointing is um, already a more sophisticated form of communication than what I always thought was the origin of language, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> like there's all kinds of, uh, I can give you, I can yes. give you one that says, I'm hungry. I can give you one that says, get away from here. Mm-hmm. Or I can give you one that says, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. And that that's an expression of my state to some extent. But it doesn't involve you necessarily. That's correct. Except get away from here. It does involve you. And that seems to me to be a really powerful source of communication. Now, why why do you focus on pointing more than, say, <laughs> which is watch out, don't come too close to me? Why, why pointing over that? Well, you've glossed it as watch out, don't come close to me. But uh, I think a more natural gloss is I'm angry. Uh, uh-huh. And so I'm just expressing my emotional state. And that's what vocalizations are really good at, is expressing uh, emotional I states. I see. I've already added a, a yeah. communication element that I wouldn't have if I wasn't versed in pointing. You added a referential element, but you're, it's really just an expression of emotions. And, um, you know, in chimps, when uh, one of them screams, what it naturally does is you look at the screamer. It brings attention to the screamer. But what pointing does is that attention, it directs attention outside of the two of us to some external mm-hmm. referent. And that's different than just me expressing my emotions and hoping, you know, you'll um, do something. Yeah, yeah. So how does this apply? I, there was a very interesting thing I read that, that you wrote that it, for us, developing the ability to communicate, which so fascinates us on this series of conversations. For us humans, the things that make us most human, you say, are constructed during the first years of a child's life. That it's not, do I have it right that you're saying it's not so much how we come in through our evolutionary heritage as how we're trained into this in the early years? Well, I mean, it's it's both. Uh, um, the evolutionary heritage expresses itself during uh, child development. So the hereditary elements of of human development um, are a kind of a, a baseline or a structure um, in which the learning happens. Um, so uh, we are both evolved to be especially cooperative and to use this kind of communication to facilitate and coordinate our cooperation. And the especially culturally created things like conventional languages, we actually, you know, we have to actually learn those. But I don't think we learn pointing, for example. I think young children just naturally uh, point to get other people's attention and we have studies where you try to train children to point at an earlier age than they normally would, and it doesn't do anything. So I tend to think of that as more natural, and then the conventional linguistic communication as cultural and learned. Do the children point 
for one another's benefit, or do they mainly relate to adults? Well, that's an interesting question. It is mainly for adults, uh, and because early on in the sort of natural state, uh, little children are in their mother's care and nursing until about three years of age. So they're mainly communicating to coordinate with mom for their, um, you know, for their basic subsistence and other uh, learning and all that sort of thing. So the children really have a um, yeah, they have a, a, a stake in the in communicating with uh, the adult in a way that with their peers they don't initially, but they will later. Of course, by the time they're in school, uh, their peers are as important or more important than their parents. So, do they? Do you think they get that? innately or do they find out in some kind of trial and error <laughs> process that they're not getting very reliable information from another two-year-old? Yeah, I think probably uh, probably a little bit of both. Uh, they recognize that that guy is as as incompetent as I am when they see another little toddler <laughs> going around, uh, toddling around. And uh, we even have a little experiment where the little two-year-old children will um, believe an adult and respond to the adult much more than they will to another two-year-old. And is there a difference between how they do that with their moms or, or their dads uh, and the way they do it with other adults? If you have a research assistant come in and test them on pointing. Are they as responsive as they'd be to a mother? Yeah, I mean, uh, in a general way, yes, all other things being equal. But what you have with your parents is you have a lot of shared experience that can be drawn on to um, um, interpret someone's point. So if the child walks into the laboratory and points to a picture of a dog on the wall, the experimenter might not know why he's pointing to the picture of the dog, but the parent might say, oh, yes, that looks just like our dog at home. Uh, so, yeah. so the pointing draws on shared experience, and so um, they're going to be able to communicate more richly with people they have more shared experience with. In a, in a laboratory setting, we create the shared experiences, so we play some game or something, um, and then they can point about that. A lot of what grows out of the pointing experience, which is a shared experience, a lot of what grows out of it seems to me to be helping. I remember us walking down the street in Leipzig yes. on this on Scientific American Frontiers, and and you were explaining pointing to me, and I I, I think I became aware for the first time that when you pointed at something and I looked at the thing and not at your finger that you and I were in contact in a way we hadn't been before. Yes. And that seems to me to be tied to helping somehow. It, it, it is. I mean, we, I, I've said it this way, that um, even, even a, a, a sort of a point where I'm trying to get you to do something for me, it's I'm asking, I'm requesting help. So I point to, if the child points to an object they want, eh, eh, you say, well, you know, that's not helping, but I'm asking for help. And then, when yeah. I point out, and then when I point out something, like just a bird flew past and I just point, then I am being helpful to you. And I'm saying, I think you are going to find that interesting or important. And I think in the case where chimpanzees, we've done studies with them in their interpretation of human pointing, and they're not ready for somebody to point out something to them uh, for their benefit. Um, and so they don't really get it because of that very um, basic assumption that the other person's trying to help me and be cooperative. Can you, you can, I assume you can train a chimp to respond to a point. Well, let me let me give you an example. So, if um, 
chimpanzees naturally follow gaze direction. So if they came into a room and you looked and pointed over to the side, they would see some food, they would go get it. And you would say, oh, mm -hmm. they're interpreting the pointing. But what they're doing risk basically is following your gaze direction and seeing the food and then responding. And so now if you just transform the situation slightly, where you now the chimpanzee knows that there's food in one of two opaque buckets and you point and look toward the bucket, they don't get it. And they don't get it because, and children get it at 12 months of age, before mm. they're even linguistic. And the children get it because they're saying, why does he think that that bucket over there is interesting for me or relevant or important for me? And so they go check it out. The chimp said, you know, they say, food, food, where's the food? Uh, okay, bucket. They look over at the bucket. Boring, food, 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 where's the food? Uh, we make the very simple inference that if... Um, somebody directs our attention to the bucket, it must be relevant uh, for what we're doing. And they don't make that simple inference. Oh, I see. So they, they're not able to make use of the information that That's they're right. taking in. That's right. And you're trying to tell them where the food is, but they just see the bucket when you look over there, and they don't think it's relevant to the food. The child sees the bucket and says, well, if he's directing my attention to the bucket, if he's pointing to the bucket, then he must want me to uh, do something about it. And must want So it me. sounds like there's something underlying this connection, underlying the, um, the action of pointing and looking at the bucket, that a child, even at the age of 12 months, can make use of. There's something going on yes. that the child can make use of. Yes. And, the, and that makes the pointing significant. Yes. And the chimp doesn't seem to have that. What What is it? What's underlying? It sounds like we're part of a community before we even know it. Well, um, you know, the term I've used, I borrowed from the philosophers, is shared intentionality or we intentionality, that children understand that we are doing something. We are playing this game together. Um, and so we're already connected. And then when you point for me, I want to know how that's relevant to this thing we are doing together. And I assume you're helping me in this activity that we are doing so, together. So you, are, are you saying that we come into the world with this sense of we, W-E, we-ness, <laughs> rad, rather than have to learn it or what? Well, developmentally, um, it seems to come online about nine months of age. I've had over the years all of my colleagues and, and students who've had babies, and I just say, you know, nine-month revolution. Wait for the nine-month revolution. <laughs> and between nine and 12 months of age, it's like clockwork. They, they start pointing um, and holding things up and showing them, which chimps don't do either. Just mm. like just like picking up a toy and holding it up in the air and showing it. Um, yeah. Just to share attention to it. Yeah, uh, there, is, there is that wonderful, innocent, sweet thing where children want you to see what they have or what they're doing. Exactly. What we, what we have is some children... Um, who don't really point in that way, and that's children with autism, children on the autism spectrum disorder, mm -hmm. who have an autism spectrum disorder. Sometimes they point when they want things, but they don't tend to point just to say, oh, isn't that interesting? Here's something you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. um, they don't do that kind of pointing. That's really one of the, one of the key diagnostic uh, features for trying to diagnose um, autism spectrum disorder at a very early age. So um, it has a strong biological basis. It comes out at roughly the same time in development for all normal children. And so there may be some learning involved, but it has it's, it's really uh, um, coming a large part out of our evolutionary heritage. This makes me wonder if not only language, but empathy 
is connected to this sense of we, this the situation where we not only can point at things and have a shared experience, but we can have an, an estimate of what's going on in the other person's feelings. Yes. Do you, do you see a connection there? Yes, and indeed, one of the ways that we um, connect with other people is by either doing things with them or watching things with them. Uh, that's if, if you have someone that, you know, some colleague that you only know a little bit, if you go to the museum and watch things with them or you go to a movie or you go to a ball game, this is a bonding experience. Um, and so there is a, a, an emotional dimension to the process, which is that we become closer in that way. If, and if you think on a slightly higher level, you can almost define the kind of relationship you have with other people by what you share with them and what you want to share with them. So if something significant happens in your life, um, your, you know, whatever, uh, your, your dog dies or something, uh, you would share that with your closest friends, but you wouldn't necessarily share that with somebody that you just met in the subway or something. So, right. um, so the, the, what we share with people is almost, almost, almost defines, uh, uh, the depth of our relationship. And, Tell me how you think it may be connected to the pointing. I just, yeah. I, I, I smell a connection there, but I don't hear it from you yet. Um, well, if you, in, in, in adults, it's often through language and not so much about pointing. But now if we scale back down to the infants, that the infants aren't capable of relating a complex experience linguistically. Uh, they're just pointing to mom, oh, look at that clown over there jumping up and down. Isn't that exciting? And mom says, oh, yes, it's exciting. And they are having a shared experience that is uh, deepening their uh, emotional connection. So do you, do you think somewhere in that is the ability of the kid to have a sense that right now mom is sad or right now yeah. mom is angry and that's going to have to be taken into account in the way I relate to her? Abs absolutely. I mean, in theory, you could discern some emotions from a distance uh, and looking at people's facial expression and seeing that they were crying and things. But when we're actually sharing experience together, all of that is much more salient. So if shared experience is the basis of a relationship, could it go even further? Could it alter hostile relations among nations? I asked Michael about that right after we come back from this short break. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Michael Tomasello. Well, it sounds so much at the heart of what you've been talking about in terms of your studies, this this notion of a shared experience. Yes. And that pointing is really central to that. Well, uh, you know, good communicators uh, always um, have what they share with their um, the people they're talking to and what they don't share. So if you're going to tell somebody about what you do professionally, say, if it's one of your colleagues where there's you have a lot of background shared knowledge about what it means to act on Broadway and what it means to have a director do X or Y, you stalk in one way. And if you're talking to a novice who knows nothing about acting or Broadway, then... Um, uh, you would choose a different vocabulary. You would explain yourself more. You would fill in background. And so all good communicators do that um, sort of naturally. That idea sounds to me like um, the the ability to know your audience in a very acute way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you'll be very aware of what experiences you do share together. Mm-hmm. And and you'll change the way you talk as a result of that. that yeah, but even with even one some of the studies we've done with young children is um, we give them different experiences uh, with people. So, for example, we have a study where uh, a child will play with a teddy bear with one experimenter, and then they'll go in a different room and play with a toy duck with another experimenter, mm-hmm. and then they enter a third room. And if and there are a duck and a teddy bear picture on the wall. And if they enter the room with the one uh, where they've shared the teddy bear, they'll point to the teddy bear. Look, there's the thing we played with. Right? Mm. And if they enter the room with the adult with whom they've shared the duck, they'll point to the duck. Look, there's the a picture of the duck we were playing with. So they th- th- already, before they are using language in any meaningful, any, any sophisticated way, um, they are taking account of the different shared experience they have with different people. That sounds so important to me. I, I, maybe I'm, uh, I'm overemphasizing it. but <laughs> I don't think you're overemphasizing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think of the ways in which we cooperate with one another. There seem to be huge events that call on our cooperative spirit, earthquakes, tsunamis, mm-hmm. And to me, most notably, war, yeah. which because of the irony involved, yeah. we're, we, we sacrifice ourselves for one another in a war yeah. with the purpose of doing away with the other people who we identify as our enemy. Mm-hmm. We, and now that sounds an awful lot like we don't share enough experiences with them, that we don't, we don't see their duck on the mm-hmm. wall. <laughs> and we're only cooperating with the people who shared the du- the duck with us. Well, the the dark side of cooperation, as it were, is that in human evolution, as we are evolving to uh, share experience and communicate and cooperate with our group mates, at the same time, because we don't share experience with the outgroup 
people. Those guys across the river over there, we don't really know about them. You know, they dress funny, they talk funny, they eat disgusting foods. You know, they're they're not us. And so we huddle together and we all depend on one another and we help one another, but the outgroup we're not so sure about. So so in, in, in human evolution, I would say there are two um, main ways that people feel solidarity for one another. The first is by doing things together and having shared experiences, and that's most basic, and that's what human infants are already doing. And secondly, uh, later in human evolution, we began forming cultures, and we were living in larger groups where we had people that we'd never met before, but they're still one of us because they talk like us and they dress like us and they have the same religion and they eat the same things. And so they're what are sometimes called in-group strangers, but they're still in-group. They're still one of us. And if we're ever in a war, they're going to be on my team. Uh, and so that's based on similarity, similarity of behavior and action. So, so doing things together and sharing experience is one thing, and and being similar is another. And uh, this um, cultural um, antipathies that we sometimes see are based on they aren't like us. They don't talk like us. They worship some weird something that we don't recognize. Um, and so based on uh, their lack of similarity to us. But I think if we had more shared experiences, uh, those of us who interact with people from different cultures uh, more often, uh, then you see our commonality much more clearly. Yeah, I, there have been some interesting attempts over the decades to do something about that, to, uh, visits, uh, cultural visits mm -hmm. by uh, dance groups and orchestras and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. From from countries that we were at the time regarding as either our enemies or at least people we didn't trust. Exactly. But they haven't, maybe they've avoided worse interactions than we've experienced, but they haven't, certainly haven't solved the problem. But I mean, I think you'll find on, <clears throat> on something where cooperation is really most intense, take like a sports team, or in your case, um, if you're going to put on a play or a Broadway show or something, um, and you're doing it for weeks, or in the case of a sports team, maybe a year or two years, and those people that you're cooperating with and working with and trying to achieve a common goal with, uh, you you form a, a personal relationship of a type that uh, I think goes beneath uh, the cultural differences. But those are not easy experiences, you know, for the average everyday person to have with a person from a, a very foreign culture. Is there, are there things we can learn about communicating, about relating to one another that we ought to pay attention to, to have better relating, better communicating? Things we can learn from your work, do you think? I guess I would just emphasize more than anything else the context, that language is like floating on the surface of our relating, um, and it's trying to direct the relating a certain way and uh, all that. But it, it really um, depends on uh, our, our, our shared experiences, our different perspectives, um, and our sense of we as we uh, cooperate together or, or not, as the case may be. Um, and uh, I guess that's what I would emphasize more than anything. And so, for example, in school settings, um, um, I would be an advocate for more 
of uh, peer cooperative kind of learning experiences, which a lot of schools are, are doing now. What, what does that mean? Uh, that means that the teacher is setting up uh, problems uh, uh, then groups of children are then working on rather than the isolated child at his or her desk, um, you know, working away. Um, and how does that how does that make use of your, your research? Because the more you share experience with people and the more you do things together with people toward a common goal, um, you know, the, the feeling of teamwork that we did this together is a very strong bonding experience. And so, uh, again, there's a fair amount of this in schools already, but and it depends on the school. But um, um, if we could get that going across the cultural lines that are in our schools and the socioeconomic school lines that are in our schools, um, we might, you know, start building a foundation for a little more understanding across these um, categories that otherwise might divide us. I guess it kind of um, depends for it to work at its best level on a teacher um, overseeing the interaction or or making sure the interaction is really taking place. I remember when, uh, as a student, I would be asked to collaborate with another student on a a project, you know, to make a diorama mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon as it became clear to me that the other kid really knew how to do it, and I really <laughs> didn't know how to do it, the other kid did it, and mm-hmm. I just uh, I, I had my name on it. But mm-hmm. that didn't mean that I was learning much about the project. Now, maybe I was learning about cooperating because a good way to cooperate is to get the best out of the other person that you mm-hmm. possibly can. Well, and, and another thing is when you uh, reason about things. So one of the things that some people have done is given these kind of, um, you know, whether moral dilemmas or certain kind that, that we're supposed to um, come to a consensus about what should we do in this kind of situation. Let's have a group discussion. Because when you um, engage another person in, in reasoning and discussion, it's, it's a fundamentally cooperative enterprise because both of you are essentially saying that we are both ready to go with whatever the best reasons are, whatever the best um, uh, outcome we can come to from the point of view of the the evidence and the logic involved, or at least <laughs> at least some of us are, maybe not yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe not everyone. Well, but. I love hearing that the practical things that I've spent a lot of my life on lately, helping to improve communication, are based in things that. You've you've really been finding the sources of, which I find immensely interesting, and 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 again, the growth of this sense of community that may begin with pointing at something or is is that's that's at the early stage of that growth yeah. of community. Yeah. That is in itself the birth of communication and the. The birth of, as you say, the sense of we. Yes, I mean, I would uh, again. I would. I would stress that the sort of sense of we forms this sort of background and infrastructure for we are communicating, uh, which um, uh, gives the significance to the pointing gesture and which uh, sets up the trust uh, that you're trying to tell me something that's be interesting or important to me. And so we are naturally cooperative, uh, but we're naturally cooperative uh, with uh, those that we share things with. And when the people that we don't share things with, um, if we're going to end up being cooperative with them in the ways that we all would like, um, we're going to have to work on that. We're going to have to find new ways to make that happen. And the funny thing is we share so much that we ignore 
We, yes. I mean, the, 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 common, the commonality of just being human, having children, eating, sleeping, we, we share things with one another that we don't share with any other living things yeah. Yeah. to such yeah. a great extent. Well, just, just exposure is already, um, uh, you know, I think uh, already helpful because you see the things you you uh, you share with those people. All my, all my anthropologist friends and I've had some experiences myself. But when you go to cultures that are very different from ours, that are almost hunter gatherer cultures, very, um, you know, on the land and whatever, no technology and no literacy and all of that. Um, for me, the most, um, the thing that always strikes me the most is how similar we all are. You would think mm. that us coming from computers and all of that stuff, that it would be completely different, but it's not. You sit around the fire and you talk and you communicate as you can. And, um, and we're all humans. And, and the more experience you have, uh, the more I think you see that commonality. And as I've read some of the, um, surveys on, uh, people's attitudes toward immigration, uh, one of the things that seems to be coming about is the people who are most afraid of immigration are the people who have least experience uh, with the recent immigrants. And the people from more cosmopolitan and multicultural parts of the country are um, more positive about it. So I think experience um, in every way we can get it um, leads to more um, uh, perception of commonalities and possibly to shared experiences. And that's something that, you know, we should try to facilitate if we can. That's great. I, uh, we've come to the end of our time, but I wonder if you'd be willing to take part in our seven quick questions that we end every <laughs> show with. Oh, seven okay. quick questions vaguely related to communicating. Okay. okay. And, you're, and you're invited okay. to give a, sh- a quick answer. Okay. Okay, what do you wish you really understood? Um, I wish I really understood cultural differences. I'm, I'm always afraid that I'm viewing it uh, through my own cultural lens and that I'm not really getting it, but I wish I could really uh, see the different cultural points of view um, somehow more clearly. What do you wish other people understood about you? <laughs> um <laughs> I, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it's so uh, funny. Every one of these questions causes somebody to draw a blank. Um, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just plugging away, uh, doing my best to try to figure out how things work. That's that's all. So the next question may may have some relevance. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that last one is uh, pretty much up there. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> um, uh, gosh. Uh, okay, that's the new candidate for the strangest question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, do, yeah. do, do, do you try to stop a compulsive talker? Maybe you just uh, enjoy the experience yeah, and the commonality. Yes, just tune out. Just tune out and let them keep talking. Okay. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Um, well, it's, 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 it's interesting. My, my wife and I both uh, study some of these kinds of things, and we both show, you know, like to think we're empathetic toward all kinds of things. But um, a roach runs across the floor, and I just stomp it. <laughs> <laughs> and she thinks, she thinks I'm really turned off my empathy module there uh, for that, because she, she just, how can you just stomp on a roach? 
I say, I've been doing it my whole life. You know, I grew up with roaches and I'm doing it. So um, I can't quite get empathy for uh, roaches. Okay. I was mainly <laughs> talking about people, but I'll take that answer. The, the, uh, the next question is, how do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> Well, in person is always the best. In person, yeah, everybody it, says that. The question is, how do you like to do it? Uh, I, I like to do it in person because um, you can get the person's reaction and respond to it, and um, um, yeah, and empathize yeah. and be there as you need to be. And you know, um, email just doesn't do it. Right. Okay. Last question: What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's, you know, a betrayal of trust. Uh, you trust, you put trust in people and, um, and, and when people trust you, you have to live up to it. And if you don't live up to it, then that's going to cause serious damage. So I think that's the, that's the prototype. Great. Michael, it's been really interesting and fun to talk with you. It brings me back to the days we we spent in Leipzig when I first met you a few years ago. Uh, you know, you actually um, uh, forgot the first time we met. We met when you did primetime primates at your Oh, I did forget that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that it's significant for me because um, my mother was always dubious about what I did for a living uh, <laughs> with, you know, uh, thought I was like a perpetual student or something when I first got my job. And then she saw me on TV with you, and I was legitimate from then on. She thought what I did <laughs> must be important. <laughs> if Alan, if Alan Alda thinks it's interesting <laughs> and important, then it must be. That's great. Thanks so much. Great talking <laughs> right. with you today. All right. Thanks, Alan. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Michael Tomasello is the principal investigator at the world-renowned Tomasello Lab at Duke University. Michael and the researchers at the lab study how and why young children develop the social and cognitive skills that enable them to become cooperative and communicative adults. Michael's latest book, Becoming Human, A Theory of Ontogeny, is available through Harvard University Press, and it offers a radical reconsideration of how we develop the qualities that make us human. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He tells me about what he says is a startling and worrying trend on college campuses. Suddenly, like from out of nowhere, in 2013 to 2014, students are acting as though 
Words are dangerous. Books are violent. Speakers will be traumatizing. It's as though the students were very, very thin-skinned, easily harmed, and frightened. I want to stress, we don't know the cause, but the two best hypotheses are uh, social media and before they got social media, the vast overprotection that we subjected kids to. We basically took away childhood from them in the 1990s. By overprotecting our kids, are we ill-preparing them for becoming adults? That's what Jonathan Haidt argues next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.